Welcome to Best Adapted Screenplay, a podcast about film adaptations and the stories which inspired them. You got it. What's up? Sorry, you got to go again. You 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 flubbed the name. Best Adapted Screenplay. I thought we were doing Best Adapted Podcast. Okay, best. Okay, sounds good. All right. <clears throat> Welcome to Best Adapted Podcast, the podcast about film adaptations and the stories which inspired them. I'm Frank Meyer, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Caleb Drickey. Thank you very much. Caleb, we've got a guest today. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, Matthew B. Thomas, he's a PhD candidate at Duke University, uh, studying Thoreau, but uh, not today. He's said something different today. What's up, Matthew? Hey, Caleb. Great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not really a Thoreau scholar. Okay, so I, I'm going to leave that behind. But um, 19th century. Uh, yeah, but we're okay. So we're not doing Thoreau. We're not even doing 19th century. Is there a Thoreau um, film adaptation to even touch if we needed to? Oh man, <laughs> a question. Yeah, there's an Emily Dickinson movie that's sort of in the wheelhouse, I guess. Tune in next week for that with Thoreau. special guest Matthew B. <laughs> um, no, but uh, we got a. I, this episode is is we're kicking off a a run on uh, the master of British espionage, uh, John Le Carre, um, and his third novel, but breakout novel, The Spy Who Came In from the Cold. And I'm very excited to talk uh, with you two about Le Carre, but also this novel in particular. And I kind of want to know what your relationships are with Le Carre. Uh, as a writer, um, and with and with this with this film, Matthew, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, my relationship with Lockhart, I I always imagine like I think there's a scene in uh, um, where in um, the Wes Anderson, uh, you know, the divorce classic divorce. You know, help me out, Caleb. What's the? Uh, is this the Tenenbaums? Yeah, the Tenenbaums, um, where Tenenbaums. he's like yeah, yeah, yeah. in a hotel room and he has a stack of spy novels and like some like whiskey bottles or whatever, and he's like this, you know, divorced failure of a dad, and he's just like reading spy novels. I always thought like if life really went to shit, I like it'd be cool to like be in a motel room just reading like a stack of Lacare novels, <laughs> and I. <laughs> Like, and I haven't really read that many, so which is kind of comforting because, like, if I ever wanted to read them, like, there's just, there's so many out there, and I know I would be entertained for just, like, an inordinate amount of time. Because um, I've only read Spy, Who Came In From The Cold, and Tinker Tailor, and, you know, seen the movie adaptations and things like that. But uh, when I read these, I'm like, wow, you know, reading is really fun, and I love these books. Um, and sometimes when I'm reading for school, I just am like, man, reading this like it's pretty boring (laughs) (laughs) so it's really i really like these books um and you know it's it's just alec lemus what a character um yeah so yeah i'm really excited to talk about it yeah i'm definitely a how uh, about you frank well i'm definitely a movies first and then books sort of with is my relationship with le carre in that i not in terms of priority just in terms of exposure I saw Tinker Taylor 
the 2011 Tinker Tailor in theaters when it came out. And that was uh, ended up being a really important movie for me. And as a young person trying to understand movies more and try to figure out why this art form had like taken my attention so much, that was an early one that I really liked to like sink my teeth into and, and really and meditate on and, and think about and feel. And then I, after that, I read Tinker Tailor. I had read a couple of his newer ones, um, Single and Single comes to mind, and I believe another one where he's kind of in that post-Cold War, sort of looking for like the new avenues of espionage. And I think the other ones I've read of his are, are finance mostly. And then so far this film, and then excited to see where the rest of the series takes us with him. I think similar uh to you guys sort of approached le carré as a symbol of of espionage before i actually i mean i I don't think i i don't think i read him until i was you know 16 or so and i started backwards i started with a most wanted man which i think is his last novel um and 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 then saw the film and then and i hadn't really experienced that sort of elevated genre fiction before i if i read genre i was reading corny ass genre so um reading even late le carre um which i think critically is has the consensus has been that he's kind of lost his fastball since since the end of the cold war um but even even late carre i I found really revelatory and 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 fascinating in the way that he uh um is able to build uh, just atmospheres of despair um, around stories that are otherwise in in the hands of other authors so glamorous. Um, so I found I, I found him really exciting when I was a teen, uh, and that hasn't really dimmed as I've you know read and experienced and you know and watched other Le Carre ad- adaptations. Not all of which are good, and we'll get to them, but they're always they're always interesting and they're always exciting. Um, but, uh, the spy who came in from the cold is, this is the, this is the novel that launched his, his empire, um, which is a little odd because this is, it's not his first novel. Uh, it's his third, um, uh, Le Carre at the time was, he was 30 years old. He was working, uh, as an analyst, a pretty low level analyst at MI5, um, and and really had to convince his superiors uh, to allow the novel to be published, um, which uh, it, it it was a struggle, and and his relationship with MI five has been kind of a, a major point of both celebration in the press and a, a level of personal frustration. His his individual tie. Um, to, to the spying community. But the reason that it was contentious, the the novel, which is about a, a, a double agent operation, is not drawn from from Lucari's career as a spy, but it does draw on his experiences of the processes of MI5. It's he, he has a deep and rich knowledge of how spy organizations work and how operations are run. And I think that that is what audiences and critics in 1963 when the novel was published found so exciting especially as compared to something like James Bond which again are sort of a little bit more elegant and uh and and whimsical um and especially the film adaptations of of the James Bond I just wanted to ask if um 
if either of you had been to Berlin, because that's such a pivotal city, and, and specifically the Berlin Wall in the in the book here. I have. Uh, I've been, I think, three times. Um, and I've been to, the like, you know, the Checkpoint Charlie, which I think, I think in the movie is um, featured in the opening scene, uh, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, and... Well, it's funny. My, uh, my dad was FBI agent and, um, and I always had this picture of him as like a, on a, like a student, like a law school trip to Checkpoint Charlie back when it was not a tourist attraction, but a, a real thing in the eighties. And, um, I always thought that was so fascinating with, with like all the different, like, like, you know, R- French, Russian, uh, English, um, and German, um, the, the, the classic sign. Right. And, um, yeah, and it, um, and it, but Berlin itself also, um, the way that it's it's alluded to a lot in the book, um, uh, and especially when they're like when they're recruiting. I don't want to go too far ahead, but when they're recruiting Lemus and um, all these sorts of wild times, these kind of alluded to having their the people and the personalities. But yeah, I've been to Berlin. Have you been, Caleb? No, it's. Berlin exists to me very much like it exists in the novel. It's just kind of this, this, yeah, this kind of vague, hazy, you know, almost, uh, apocalyptic, um, apocalyptic and yet also Dionysian. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. It has that like nostalgia and, um, yeah, it has that sort of like Berlin Alexander Platz sort of like, you know, Weimar era, like anything goes, uh, and, and there's like, I mean, you know, not to go too far afield, but there's like the Norman Mailer book about that. I think is kind of an interesting counterpart. Um, uh, Harlot's ghost, uh, was, there's a lot in Berlin, uh, in that, although it, it takes place in, I think around the same time as this, as this one should, um, in the fifties and sixties. Um, so overlapping with Lemus's time, but it's, you know, from the perspective of a CIA officer, but, um, there's just a similar, treatment of Berlin as being this sort of sort of wild place uh, with this, you know, legacy of the Weimar era and, you know, the divvied up between these different countries and all sorts of espionage going on and people's characters are sort of duplicitous and you're, you're wondering who is trying to do what. And So my mom went to, also went to Berlin in the 80s mm-hmm. and she actually did a little smuggling uh, across the Berlin Wall. Um so she, which I wait. Are you fucking? This with is me? real. This is real. It's a little. Uh, it's got a very. This story has a very exciting opening, and less so as it goes on. But um, <laughs> most of my anecdotes like that. Also, please don't tell your dad, Matthew. I don't know if he's still on the job. Or <laughs> or this, I don't know if this counts as a cold case or not. But um, mm. uh, my mom's experience when you crossed over from west into east Berlin. Um, one of the things they had you do is you were required to deposit a certain amount of money and which would get converted into East German money. And you could either, you had to spend it over there or you could, or it would get confiscated, whatever was left as you came back into the, into West Germany. And so, you know, communist countries not known for their uh, big souvenir industries. My mom was not really finding things to spend her, her East German money on. And so she decided to bring some of it back. And so she hid the coins from her, the various coins she had. She put one in each of the fingertips of her gloves. And then um, 
comes back through the uh comes back through the gateway and the guards have like dogs that are like sniffing under the train and like big guns and these like scary looking dudes and they made her open up her camera and she had and the and she she had to maneuver her bag and open her camera without the coins jingling um but she did it successfully and still has those coins and so she is successfully i'm i'm success i, I could call myself the daughter of a successful smuggler across the berlin wall <laughs> I think they have a piece of the Berlin Wall, the museum in DC. I don't know if that, I think the museum actually shuttered the museum, but, um, I mean, I've seen like the, the, like the remaining spaces of parts of it. But. Have you seen the third man? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of in terms, you know, when you, the, like the, there's like the classic, like we can't do anything because we're organizing between like the French and the Russians and the yeah. Germans and the Americans and, it's got a great opening in Vienna, um, but it's like the same deal. Uh, um, yeah, The Third Man. It's, it's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of one of those movies I can just watch like an untold amount of times. Similar to Tinker Taylor, but and I know we're not talking about that today, but I also love the That's the fucking best movie, movie. ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Should we launch into the book? Um, yeah. No, so we've mentioned Alec Lemus a lot. Um, he's of course the protagonist. I think he's one of the great John Le Carre characters. And in the the copy of of the book um, that I bought, which is the fiftieth anniversary edition, John Le Carre uh, um, wrote a new introduction to it, in which he revealed the inspiration for for Alec Lemus, which is I just think a, a great story. Which again, he didn't base it this this novel on any of his own experiences as a spy. But he said, quote, 50 years on, I don't associate the book with anything that ever happened to me, save for one wordless encounter at London Airport. I do remember the image of one figure, a Peter Finch-like figure in a raincoat at London Airport, going up to the bar and hauling a whole lot of different currencies out of one pocket and demanding a large scotch. And I thought, yeah, that's, that is a sort of, archetypal secret agent figure, exhausted, barely knows what country he's in, much traveled, down on his luck, that sort of printed itself as an image. I think that is the triumph of Le Carre's novel. And I think that is also what Le Carre believes is the triumph of his novel. It's not the intricacy of his plotting, though his plotting is intricate. Um, it is his ability to ground something that is for the vast majority of readers incomprehensible which is the the world of espionage grounding that onto one or two characters and showing this the the moral intellectual and physical deterioration that that kind of life um has on a person. Alec Lemus is very much not James Bond. He is a physically and emotionally broken man. Um, and the, the story of, of the spy who came in from the cold is, in fact, the story of how these people who go out in the cold can never come back in. Um, and I think that's, that is the beauty of the novel, is, is Alec Lemus and Liz Gold and a handful of other supporting characters just watching it's it's just they're they were never really high to begin with but watching them just be absolutely deconstructed by the world that they live in what's the pov is it is it first person from lemus 
uh, I think it's it's third person. Um, Liz Gold, who is who is renamed as as uh, Nan uh, in the film, uh, she has a, a much larger role in in the novel. She has some some uh, POV chapters, um, but I think it's it's a yeah it's a third person limited. Most of it is from the perspective of Liamus, but occasionally they will leave um, to follow Smiley or to follow Nan or, or Liz in the novel. Yeah, and the the whole plan that control hatches and it depends on that um on the on the character that that uh Lucare sort of summons that this like you know totally believable um you might call it realistic uh character who is like you know suffers trauma from being out in the cold and can't come back in and that it it's um you know it's phrased as a bet or as like uh, an offer uh, by control in the film and in the book, you know, I need to stay out in the cold a little bit longer, um, but it, it's not really like an option so much. It, it, that's what sort of, I think the book bears out uh, and the movie bears out is that, like you said, Caleb, it, it, it just, he can't, uh, he can't come back in. And, and so that, that's what lends authenticity to the whole, the whole plot that, that control and smiley are hatching to, you know, save Munt. I also, the, I would say the other great insight that Le Carre has in this novel is is the thing that that drives people to go out in the cold in the first place um and he he talks about what in again in the same forward he talks about what drove him to join mi5 in the first place and then sort of gets expanded as as lamus story backstory is expanded um but for lacare it was guilt um guilt primarily that he had not fought in the Second World War, the sort of the great, um, the great moral fight, not of his generation, but he was because he was too young, but of of his lifetime, and he missed out and was searching for a replacement for that. So that was his first layer of guilt. But also the second was that Lucari's father was a war profiteer. Um, so it was not only did he not fight, but that he was enriched by this fight that destroyed so many other people and that is why it, it was not any form of capitalistic idealism or a belief in in democracy but personal shame and for lemus it's a little bit different because lemus in the in the novel is is older even than than lemus in the film who in the film is 39 i think um in the novel he's he's in his early 50s yeah uh and and was a world war ii veteran and uh and for him, it's it's it is guilt, but it's a survivor's guilt. Um, uh, Lemus in in the novel was a a veteran of the war, uh, and ran resistance operations in Holland. And much like he sees in Berlin years down the line, watches as his contacts get picked off one by one by one by one. And that is the initial trauma that prevents him from coming back in. He tries to leave and and is unable to and returns after the war uh but it's it is that it's it's guilt and trauma is not any sort of you know patriotic reverie that that drives people like Lemus to dedicate their lives to what is all by by all accounts just a miserable fucking existence um yeah well the yeah you know and like in, in tinker taylor and you know not to diverge but you know it's um there's a there's a scene where you know like it, it, Smiley talks of someone who he used to work with and she said that, you know, 
we used to be so great, you know, back when England meant something and things like that. And, um, and it's a good scene, but it, it also speaks to, I think, the general mood of a lot of the early Le Carre stuff where there's a nostalgia and, and, you know, like a, a, a qualified nostalgia for, um, you know, the, the clear moral stakes of, of the war, um, and taking part in intelligence as part of the war. And, and then, you know, to Lemus, who can recognize his current work in Berlin as this sort of like corrupted, uh, no longer clearly moral, sort of ridiculous and um, absurd conniving that doesn't really seem to have any sort of importance like it used to. And, and then there's also, of course, like the, the guilt of, of taking part in that. And uh, I mean, it's interesting in the character of Munt is also... Um, was like a Hitler youth, it's alluded to in the book, but didn't take part in the war. So there's like this generational shift of people who took part in the war versus the people who came in in the Cold War in the early years and through the 60s and 70s. They don't really have, they're, they're just a, you know, there's just a, it's a sort of gray area of, uh, that's, that's like alluded to in the beginning of the, of the book by control. Like, it, you know, we're just doing the same thing they're doing. And we have this axiom of being defensive, but we're you know doing just as many atrocities as uh, the Russians are doing. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that part is also in the book because that's uh, to me I, I really enjoy that scene a lot in uh, in Control's office where he gives that line about how fundamentally the West is supposed to be defensive but is essentially acting as ruthless as the as the as the East, and how that line even gets sort of repeated down in the opening scene when Lemus is talking with the German border guards about like. Can you give my guy covering fire as he's trying to cross into the border? Like, what are our options here? And their response is, we do not shoot into the east. That would be war. Our only order is to fire back if they fire into the west. And so it's the party line all the way through the different ranks of the of the Cold War warriors. Yeah, it's sort of a ruthless logic. And it doesn't really have any of the romantic aspects of just going off and doing a courageous thing because... You, you think you should, or, you know, the things that are associated with the war itself. And it's like this cold war mood of, you know, it's a, it's like a professional professionalization of this, like, you know, stasis that'll just last for decades. And we have rules and bureaucracy and, uh, you know, these intelligence services changed, uh, you know, totally changed from, you know, what, what they were in the, the war itself to after, um, you know, the CIA, for example, would be shaped by the the war itself in the post-war years. And in a similar way, the MI6 also had to change. There's, yeah, there's always that, like, I think that background of when the war happened and there's like action and, and, and now that there's this, uh, guilt about, you know, living in this like weird space. I don't know. You're, you're like, he's drawing a paycheck. Like, you, you know, it, there's no immediacy to, um, like having to, you know, save England. The, the stakes don't really seem to be that clear. And there's a persistent, you know, to use the phrase both side, both sideism uh, that we are familiar with today. But um, yeah. So. Well, I want I wanted to ask about this if this elements in the novel or not. I I love in the first third of this movie how it's such a dreary depiction of England and of this home that he's supposed to be fighting for, and, it, and it's just it's just so dour and and grim and 
when it is like brighter fun, it's mostly in like a CD moment when he's in the burlesque club or something. So is that depiction of, of England as home as, as a home that can't really live up to what they're defending? Is that the case in the novel as well? I would say it's, it's even clearer in the novel. His employer at the library is a sort of a vicious sneak. Miss Crail. Yeah. Miss Crail, who is, who in the film I actually think is, is portrayed pretty more sympathetically yeah yeah yeah. um she's it comes off as as fairly kind in the novel she's uh mean she's just like awful like typically like this weird extreme caricature of an english like uh spinster right uh there's more of a uh a there's more uh of, of a clear sense of class tension in the novel as well lemus is very much uh, a, a middle class, uncollege educated guy. I believe he's the son of a mechanic, and and this plays part in, into his backstory for defection that he's sort of overlooked by the. There's a line, um, both in the novel in and and in the film that you know uh, the circus has some idea that eaten men are discreet. Um, mm. So the the idea that the sort of the Cambridge educated elite very much run every every major operation uh in the UK and shut out people like Lemus. Yeah, no, England is is a grim dour place in the novel yeah. and if anything is made lighter in the film. I think there's like also a there's always a sense of like poverty. Uh there's a lot of like focus on like how many how much money is being spent. I don't really know anything about you know, the distinction between shillings and pounds, but it always seems like, my God, like they're like on the, like they're, they're barely getting by. And there's just this focus on, on money. And, and Lemus's pension is a, is a point of, it's a subtle point, but I think it's, it, it runs throughout the book. Um, he, he didn't qualify for a pension because he dropped out of the service for a period. And so part of what he's trying to achieve, though it's not really stressed, but it's alluded to and sort of comes up occasionally, is that he's trying to, you know, get by. He's trying to um, secure some sort of means of of living for uh, post um, circus life. Um, this is why Le Carre is the best, is because he's like the only spy writer who would spend time on whether or not his main character was getting pension from the CIA, you know, it's right. like, yeah. no yeah. other spy author <laughs> like would have that as a major K or Yeah. And I would say the, the, the last element of, of the sort of England that is not home is, is that in the novel, Lemus is divorced and has two kids that he doesn't see. Um, so it's not only that he is financially living on the edge and professionally marginalized. Um, socially, he has no friends and neither does he have, family or really i mean he has an ex-wife and kids but no way to contact them and no desire to either england for him and it seems for his his love interest and and co-collaborator liz gold england is is a it does it doesn't feel like a homeland worth protecting should we jump into the film all right let's do it i think so so this uh this film is directed by uh martin ritt who's a sort of journeyman Hollywood director. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he worked a lot with uh, Paul Newman, uh, including on uh, The Long Hot Summer, which is an adaptation of uh, a collection of William Faulkner stories. 
The Outrage, which is an Americanization of uh, Kurosawa's Rashomon. Oh. Um, yeah, also starring Paul Newman. And uh, he also, and this is maybe just like something for me, um, but he did an adaptation of Hemingway's uh, Nick Adams stories and uh, fucking shoot that shit right up my yeah. main line. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting about Martin Ritt is uh, he was never, unlike several other of the people who uh, are are credited in the production of this film, he was never officially named as a communist sympathizer by the House Un- House Committee on Un- American Activity, but... Um, in 1951, he was blacklisted by Hollywood uh, for six years um, because of alleged kind of unclear ties to the Russian and Chinese Communist parties. Um, he did a couple of wartime uh, uh, fundraisers for them. Uh, but this was well before his film career took off. Uh, with the help of Paul Newman, becomes a fairly successful director, yada, yada, yada. A couple other th- other things. Uh, the film is co-written by Paul Den, who's a British screenwriter. Who uh, the year previously, nineteen sixty four, um, the film comes out is nineteen sixty five. In nineteen sixty four, Paul Den wrote Goldfinger, which is James Bond. Um, so I think that is interesting. Sort of the, For the sure. contrast between the two franchises, and I think there is a little bit more of an interconnection between the franchises uh, than maybe Le Carre would see as ideal. And the last thing that I want to talk about a little bit is the Hayes Code. Um, For those uh, listeners who don't know what the Hayes Code was, um, the Hayes Code was introduced in the 30s. It was a system of uh, self-censorship in uh, the U.S. film industry by the major studios. Uh, It banned most depictions of uh, nudity, explicit violence, and and also most uh, naughty words. And it was the de facto... Uh, censorship code in Hollywood until it was officially set aside in 1968. Um, In the late 50s and early 60s, uh, filmmakers started to sort of push the boundaries of what the Hayes Code would allow. And so by the time uh, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold is produced in 1965, it's well on its way out. But a lot of the the stylistic guidelines of the Hayes Code are still, if not formally enforced, are orthodox. Um, And I think that there's a, it's unclear whether or not that this this film the spy who came in from the cold was influenced by the Hayes code it is not officially an american production which means that it was not officially bound by it but martin ritt was an american filmmaker um uh the film was produced by salem film limited which and it's the only film that that company ever made so it seems to me that that was a british production company but I think what is important that it is distributed by Paramount, which is an American studio. And so I, I'm i not positive on what the ethics of that I is. I believe foreign films do think... would get edited to meet the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code in its last like 10 years is a lot more of a, it's contested and it's kind of a constant negotiation between filmmakers and the studios. And I think there is technically a Hayes board that is mostly comprised of like... Uh, uh, Christian religious leaders or something that that actually worked in Hollywood, um, yeah. But it's like it's negotiated, and there's even different cuts of movies that'll come up uh, within the United States where like one cut will make it to the South that has, for example, less black people in it or something, and one cut will be available in New York City that has those scenes still in it. I I guess there is no real way to determine what Martin Ritz 
true unhazed vision of this with this film would be. But before we get into the film itself, I do think it's important to note that the film is is significantly less vicious than the source novel is. Um, it's not as violent. It's not as sexually explicit. Um, there are fewer or the the um, virulent anti-Semitism that is sort of sprinkled throughout the novel is really significantly toned down, including the character of of Nan Pierce, who is uh, in the novel is Liz Gold, who is a Jewish sure. woman, um, mm-hmm. is is uh, is made not Jewish um, in the film. So I just before we get into it, I just want to say for good or for ill, the film does seem to be watered down. And I wonder if in four four years, in 1969, how does this adaptation change? That's something that pop, was popping in my mind as I was watching this film, which I think is good, but I think is a little, a little bit gentler than maybe it should be. So the movie opens on the Berlin Wall. It's got this great long panning shot that begins at coils of barbed wire on top of the wall before pulling out and showing more of the structure of the wall and the searchlights and the guards and revealing that uh, we are at Checkpoint Charlie, which is the main checkpoint between East and West Berlin, and that our main dude, Richard Burton, Alec Lemus, in a raincoat, drinking a cup of coffee that he has been spiking, is waiting for someone to come across the wall. And it's got the great, uh, Saul Kaplan did the score for this, and it's just this great, like, minimal, really ominous piano work going in through it. As he's just like peering over, waiting for someone to come. I fucking love this opening. Yeah, so much. This, the it's a stark, high contrast, black and white yeah. photography. It's like a, um, you you mentioned uh, uh, Saul Kaplan, um, who was uh, who was named uh, as a communist sympathizer by by Huak. So we have like again. I think this is. Mm. I think that, that this is a recurring thread because exactly. Sam Wanamaker, yeah. who is also blacklisted, that is in this movie. I thought um, the score would bother you, Caleb, because it's too jazzy. But uh, oh, it's <laughs> so perfect! No, it's okay, it's good. it's it's so uh, lonesome and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and dreamy. No, I fucking love it. It's I think it's it's it establishes an atmosphere for West Berlin. And establishes Lemus as a character perfectly. He is very much alone and a little bit drunk and probably listening to a lot of piano jazz in his own time. <laughs> There's something about his coat, you know, the Macintosh. I think yeah. it, it's it's yeah. thin. It's not like, it's, you know, it's ambiguous. It could be November. It could be this, whatever. It's just like, whatever. It's not summer in Berlin, right? And it's like, it's cold and, and it's like shitty weather. But it's just this like ill-fitting Macintosh, and um, that seems to just sort of, you know, it alludes to the title of the of the book or the film. But um, yeah, you know, there's this persistent sense of he's like this uh, hollowed-out guy, and he's putting some whiskey into his coffee, and then there's these like fresh-faced CIA guys, and he's like, "I'll, I'll tell Langley you've been damn good." Mm-hmm. And it's like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's I, just funny, and and it's it's a good. I think it's a good rendering of of the CIA because it's like this like idea of the CIA and its youth, right? And it's like uh, this perky faced U.S. empire, and Lemus is this weathered Englishman. And you can even see that 
just we've talked about Lemus's Macintosh, which I also agree is a great little wardrobing choice. But also the CIA agent that's with him is in like this kind of pristine herringbone, like mm-hmm. yeah, warm like, wool coat. Yeah, yeah. It's he. He looks. He looks really young. He feels and is kind, being kind of a brat. He wants to go home. <laughs> He's yeah. like the freshman who's like parents just bought him like a really nice coat because he's going to college in the Midwest or something. <laughs> right. He's got a Canadian goose or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, and Lemus again, has been through this routine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and he's seen these guys come and go and, you know, he'll he'll watch them be broken one at a time. What's interesting about the movie and the book is that um, that Lemus is, is, is seeing things come and go, but he still retains this like reluctant uh or you know he can't get past this what lends his credibility as a character is that he can't get past that he's not totally ruthless like he can't you know his agent is still important to him whereas for control there seems to be cloaked in this sort of like etonian or oxbridge like politesse or like for lemus there actually is a sense of there's a, there's a personal stake in in getting his agent across the border whereas what we kind of learned through, through the book and, and the film is that for control it, it doesn't really seem to matter yeah so let's let's talk about about this border crossing so lemus is waiting for his last agent who's been burned to cross the berlin wall um and he knows his agent isn't a, a particularly brave guy and he's not a particularly physically fit guy so he knows he's he's just gonna have to talk his way past the guard and uh we get a real sense of of Lemus's powerlessness here. All he can do is watch. We can all we can do is watch him watch someone he cares about uh, flail, um, knowing he can. You know, if he tried to jump the wall, there's maybe something he could do. But all he can do is 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 watch as as his agent gets gunned down. It's a pretty. It's pretty nasty sequence. Well, because the the way that the that the the lights all flash on and the alarm siren goes off, it's so cacophonous and it's just cut through that quiet Saul Kaplan score, and then this dude just gets shot off his yeah. bicycle. Yeah, it's it's totally striking. Uh, and the the bicycle adds like a, this like he's like teetering on the bicycle. It really adds this sort of drama to it. Yeah, and then we I and I think this is a great editing choice. We cut. We don't linger on on the aftermath of the shooting at all. We cut immediately to the plane that is taking Lemus back back to England. I think this is a brilliant choice. Um, that I, I and first reflection I found unsatisfying, but um, but thinking back, um, yeah, it's got this killer match cut Lemus- from uh, a close up of Lemus's face and just like Richard Burton, all these like crags and like lines in his face, and then just cuts to the front of an airplane in the cold sky. And it like almost lines up with like the 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 creases in his brow and stuff. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is Richard Burton kind of looks like a piece of like industrial technology in this movie. <laughs> yeah. He looks he's yeah. got the face of a Boeing. <laughs> yeah, so so we we jump immediately from sort of the height of of personal and professional despair to uh to a meeting with uh we meet control. Um and we've we've kind of alluded to 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 what who control is, and he's kind of cold and calculating and uh, polite, but lacking a warmth. Um, well, he's the spy master, I, I don't you know, know. Like he's control here is a dignified 
like soft-spoken English gentleman who remembers how Lemus takes his tea and has this like quaint, pleasant little office, but is uh, he's very cold and clear-eyed about about the Cold War. Yeah, and 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 we've alluded to this speech before, but this is where he lays out essentially the rules of operation for the circus, which is that they cannot be constrained to follow the same you know democratic principles that Western governments pretend to hold so dear. They act just as uh, cruelly and as callously as their opponents across the wall, um, because they can't afford not to. And Lemus doesn't seem happy, particularly about about that operation. He's bummed. I mean, he's uh, and there's a great moment um, when uh, Control offers him a drink. He's like, "Dude, got some alcohol? What's up, man?" And uh, that that's word for word, by the way. That's exactly how he phrases it in the <laughs> 1965 British movie. Um, and and Lima says, no, I'm going to wait. And Control is like, can you still do that? Like, can you still wait? Like, do you still have that self-control? It's so, like, I, I think Lemus is just, like, totally emasculated, basically from the get-go in this movie. Yeah. Control's character, I think, is is kind of brilliant in the movie, too. And, and it's well-realized in the book. And the, I think the description is like milky or something mm. like that. Um, but, you know, it's like a weak handshake kind of limp. Yeah. And he remembers like what kind of tea he wants. And he like complains about his new girl. Right. And he has a different secretary. There's like, again, there's a like class divide that I think is is present between the two characters. I think we do need to talk about Richard Burton here. Um, and I think it's important to note that Richard Burton is is not, uh, or, or was not an aristocrat. He's the son of a Welsh miner um, who grew up extremely poor. But I don't think that is ever reflected in any of his uh, performances. Richard Burton, I think to me, it's like along with Laurence Olivier, Richard Burton is like the picture of British dignity. Mm-hmm. And and this is actually outside of, of, I would say, the opening and closing scenes richard burton never really loses his cool um in this film and i and i i think this is a very good richard burton performance he he plays a spy oh, it's incredible quite well i mean he won he won the bafta um, for this he got nominated for an oscar for this role it's he's excellent in this movie i agree but i so this is certainly not a, a failure of of performance but i think it might be a failure of casting i don't know if richard burton can play and maybe this is just because I, I love this novel so much, but I don't know if he can play Lemus as written, who is just uh has has no pretensions of holding it together. Who is even as he is I mean, his his deterioration is partly performance, but partly is very much not. And uh Burton, who I think again is very good in this film, I don't think he can be anything other than dignified. And I, I think that is that is an element of the novel that I don't know gets translated very well to the film. But I, I see you disagree. From I, I think I mean, I think Burton is terrific. I think he plays and he's always a very Burton is like a wildly magnetic and like charismatic actor. I, I think he's I think it's uh, who framed Virginia Woolf with him comes out this same year, I believe, in which he plays like a pretty insufferable and like shitty dude. But because it's Richard Burton, he is like so fundamentally likable that you're still on his side as he is. In this constant battle of gaslighting and manipulating and arguing with his wife, um, but I mean, when he's got these lines, when he's when he's at his job at the library and Liz offer or Nan slash Liz offers him the her lunch, and he says, I, "I don't need to find lunch. Just tell me where the nearest pub is." And like that's where he's gonna go get his meal is just drink. 
And I, I think he sells that. I, I don't think this is a performance with too much dignity to it. Yeah, I, I, um, it's in, I think it's interesting kind of through line between also the, the Sean Connery movies because the idea of Connery was like, he's a Scot and he, he was like a working class guy and he had to be like, he was like this like uh, animalistic guy who had to be like classed up um, for the Ian Fleming adaptations. And, you know, you see that, you know, in like the Daniel Cray, they, they tried to lean back into this like non-classed British guy, this sort of like brute, right? Um, so it's like a persistent theme, I think, in in this like in this space of you know spy novels and spy films, uh, British ones. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I Burton, you know, he could be doing like a uh, like a sword and sandal adaptation and Cleopatra like, or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, but then he can be doing this, and it's like I think the movie leans into. I think we talked about this before a little bit, but like the Irish identity, which is not in the book, I don't think. And I think that maybe that's some sort of measure of compensation for, like, it's trying to achieve, it's trying to achieve this sort of work, both working class, but also, uh, not English, properly speaking. Um, I'm no expert, but I don't know. I, I just think that the, the bar scene, or I mean, sorry, the, uh, the grocery scene. Yeah. Where he, you know, speaks mm-hmm. to his Irish heritage. I think we can, we can kind of sort of jump into that. And so at, at the, at the very end of this, sequence uh it's eluded um control tells lemus that he's not going to let him come in from the cold just yet that's that's kind of what we get i think the next scene is is lemus in the unemployment line um right he's getting talked down to by sort of civil servants gets a job at the library uh where he meets nan uh a sort of cheery communist young lady uh have you seen the uh excerpt from obama's bi- biography where he talks about like the different women he tried to meet in college and he's like yes. he's like there was the girl with bangs quoting foucault and the marxist with the long legs and i just settled for being president and marrying michelle i guess but like uh anyway nan is one of those i, I don't know nan was the the, the, the communist <laughs> librarian that that barack obama couldn't hit it off with well, Nan believes in history, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I think it's that's a exactly it, and um, you know, there's also the sort of lycanthropy, which is you know, I don't know that Obama was into lycanthropy. Well, this library he works yeah, at is another... is very weird, and I right. maybe it's yeah, yeah, fleshed yeah. out more in the book, but I really like the symbolism of it in the movie, and that because his job is to index these books, and so the example books they use are they talk about ghosts, which are like. They're like, you would file that under A for apparitions as Lemus feels like a ghost right now, the way he's just sort of is haunting these like London streets and just like lumbering from bar to convenience store back to bar. And then later, as you kind of realize more of the game that's going on and what they're trying to use him for, the next book she has him sort of is on lycanthropy filed under M for metamorphosis. Um, and then once he flies into Europe to start really set the wheels in motion on the plan, the plane he gets off on is called the Flying Dutchman. No, I, I'm going to give Paul Dent credit here. This is not something that's that's uh, present in the novel. Uh, he works at a library. It's a shitty little library. He's got a sh- shitty little boss and a nice coworker. Um, but like, the the symbolism of, of what is actually present in the library, that's all Paul Dent. And uh, I know I, I similarly, I especially loved the lycanthropy, which again is about metamorphosis, but also the effects of 
being a wolf yeah. for too oh, long. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the perfect um, image for Burton, I would say, in this. Dogged. Um, no, I think it's really clever. I like this 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 beat a lot. Um, and Nan uh, invites him to have dinner with her after one of the, uh, after, I, I think their first work day. The timeline is a little vague in this movie. Sometimes it feels like it's been going on for like eight days and other times it feels like it could be a two month long movie, you know? It it does feel like movie time. Like it's, there's a bit of a suspension of disbelief and like the way that that forms. And in the book, I, I recall it being sort of more played out in terms of uh, he worked at the library for this amount of time and I would make these, you know, you have the perspective of Nan and she asks him because, you know, she knows that he's not going to you know make any moves. And so she, persistently asks him to have dinner right and then there's like a clear line in the book where he like stays over or something but you know in the movie there's only the allusion to his pajamas <laughs> which is like uh which is like the big reveal it's like it's like uh i just have my pajamas with me and uh that's like sort of the sex scene encapsulated in like one word um, yeah uh yeah, so I guess postcode. But you know, I I don't know enough about English movies. Maybe that that's like a just sort of a general sort of reluctance to. I think this has to be a play to American audiences. This it's I mean it's it's comical and it's and it's a like British stuffiness. It's like yeah, it's like sort of sometimes there's moments where it's like this is feels like a caricature of Britishness for an American audience. Maybe with the pajamas like that. It's like ah, oh, you know. So uptight, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to dox this person, um, but someone I've been pretty close with or just staying in touch with during COVID went on a socially distanced date that ended up in this person's backyard for more semi-distance like talking. And then his date revealed that she had brought her pajamas along. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> they uh, wow. just, just broke That's every classic. health. Like, Fauci, move. Yeah, they, Fauci himself was apoplectic when he found out they boned that <laughs> night. But I, I love their dinner scene together. Well, I, I'll be honest. I, mm-hmm. I think all the scenes of them having dinner together are very good. However, this is by far the weakest component of the movie for me is the relationship between Nan and Lemus. Uh she's way too nice to him like Lemus is such a dick to her he just negs her and is it is rude and I mean Richard Burton is like hot as hell but I don't think <laughs> I, I just am not I'm not sold on this relationship I'm where where right it's almost there's almost like a suspension of disbelief it's like all right Elizabeth Taylor like I don't know it's 1965 he's still with Elizabeth so, Taylor they're together at the premiere yeah, of this movie maybe it's just totally riding on like a just a raw sex appeal but there there isn't like much developed and i i would say again this the again i think richard burton is great and he is really fucking hot but um in the novel it's it's clear that uh this is very much a pity fuck uh by by whom to whom uh uh liz to uh to alec she can tell that he's really smart and and um and he, and he's still like it mentioned that he's like still pretty muscular even though he's 50 so mm-hmm. he's like it's kind of like a hot dad but looks like shit and smells like shit and 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 i think she very much is looks at the relationship as sort of a social rehabilitation for a damaged guy but you, you don't get the same sense of damage from burton he just he just seems mean and not uh 
not broken. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, the meanness and the aggression come, bears out in the movie, but not the same sense of brokenness. Like, they don't beat down the door and bust in when he's, like, curled up in the fetal position with, like, just bottles around him like he is in the book. Wow. And I think that was a, that's an important scene for their relationship in the book, but that doesn't really happen in the movie. It just sort of, they have that dinner where, you know, she picks him up from the prison and um, the pajamas happen. And then she talks about her Portuguese wine. And that beat is, then they have, that beat is crazy. Uh, when he yeah. is like, as a part of his cover story is drunkenly beat up a cashier, especially when the movie where you don't know the timeline. And it's like, yeah. All right, you've been on one date with this man. Uh, all you know is he is an alcoholic <laughs> who is getting out of a weekend stint in prison for beating up a cashier and you invite yeah. him to dinner. It's like, right. You know, it, it makes you want to go out and do it. Yeah. You know? It's like a <laughs> method. It, it's kind of, it's like, man, you know, this is the way to do it. This is like how to. <laughs> I actually. I gotta, like go to a bodega. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually my strategy for picking up women is. Yeah. Is, <laughs> Just right. throwing candy bars at a bodega <laughs> yeah, guys. Yeah, talking about the Bay of Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> While you get your canned yeah. peaches and your like canned oysters. And mock caviar, which is right. mock. mock yeah. Preferred mock, yeah. Uh, but we were introduced to the cashier uh, uh, a couple of scenes before the assault um, actually occurs, in which Lemus sort of drunkenly demands um, to be given credit. Um, and, uh, Martin Ritt and, and Burton sort of play the hostility between the two as sort of an anti-Irish bias. But again, in, in the, in the novel, it seems to be more of a class, um, a class divide where Lemus is, again, this, uh, he's a bum. He's, he's drunk. He looks like shit. Um, and, uh, the, so the storekeeper is, is sort of a petty bourgeoisie, you know, striver. Um, who looks upon Lemus with a lot of disdain. And when the assault actually occurs, it's not just a couple of punches. It's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's vicious. I think he puts him in the hospital. Um, yeah. I think there's a focus also on his, like, uh, on his fighting capability too. He's like, it's like, uh, you know, I, yeah, again, it's a like, movie book thing, but it, in the book, it's like, you know, he kind of swiftly dealt with him. And I, but I think in the movie too, it, it's like a it's very quick, Sort of, he like lays him out, right? Like three hits. It doesn't quite have the same sort of like Hemingway esque skillful action, though. Mm-hmm. Lemus takes yeah. great pride in the way that he beats the living shit out of this poor storekeeper. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, oh, I still got it. Yeah. Moment. <laughs> Which, again, it's, you know, this the espionage has broken his brain where, you know, his relationship doesn't give him much joy, but. Yeah, know, but performing his like task. Uh, before doing his job because he identifies with it doing it well is rewarding for him and that job is fundamentally hurting yeah. innocent people yeah um, which is why i you know my pet theory is it's like a good workplace drama um, <laughs> yeah. like office space or anything like that like you can't really drop out you know and you identify too much with the job that's it's done he's just trying to get his pension you know? <laughs> um but yeah, so goes to jail, returns, we see Nan again. Again, really excited to see a stinky, violent criminal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, and is recruited. Um, I'm forgetting the character's name, 
but Mr. Ash should have Mr. Ash. Mm. I I I love the sort of the rungs on the on the ladder of yeah of recruitment that that we get both in the film and the novel. But Mr. Ash is the lowest level. He's the least effective of all the recruiters. Um, heavily implied to to be a gay man who, if he wasn't a spy, would still be hanging around prisons, you know, mm-hmm. recruiting vulnerable men. Right. That's that's sort of the implied cover. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Which is, I think, I'm only just thinking about that now, but it's it's sort of shitty idea, right? But it's like also funny in that it's kind of also how Lemus is going to be kind of his ultimate place in this in this plan that is getting woven is uh, how do you take advantage of the the proclivities or weaknesses of a person um mm-hmm. and how do you you know the less lies the better essentially to make a good spy plan it seems so exactly yeah uh so ash picks him up in the park and um i was looking at a lecrae interview where he describes each of these interactions between lemus and these recruiters from the from from the soviet union as um there are these rungs but they're uh they're seductions is what he calls them and i think that's kind of the term in the in the spy parlance, I guess. And so uh, mm-hmm. Ash is, is the weakest pickup artist in all the the seductions. Um, like he hits him with this unbelievably lame, like, do you like watching birds line? And then buys him lunch. <laughs> but it works because uh, Lemus takes the bait. You know, Lemus goes out for lunch with him and um, Ash claims he's part of a group that is for rehabilitating prisoners. But that's a seems to be a pretty obvious lie when he buys him a bottle of wine and leaves it on the table for him to finish, which is, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I wish that that would, that would be a cool look for nonprofits to rehabilitate unemployed bums like me by just giving us booze, but, uh, it <laughs> does not exist, unfortunately, or, or probably fortunately. The link. Yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> it's such a funny name too. Uh, it, I'm a member of the link and he gives him a card and, you know, it's so, it's like meta, you know. It's it's like a perfect little name because uh, I think what's spoken to later in the book and the movie is is that um, you know each character only knows so much. Everything is categorized. Com- sorry, not categorical, compartmentalized. Right, and so everyone's a link on the chain, yeah. and uh, so you just have one more link, and this is the first one. Um, and there's this sort of this like blatant like homophobia by Lemus, which. I suppose is playing into his like working class, this like idea that he's like this sort of uncouth uh, economic anxiety, as they say. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, when right. he puts on the mega hat and just sort of sits at the bar with him. <laughs> right. Yeah. In order to be working class, you also have to be. He just like won't shut up about Brexit for a really long time. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's a clear idea of what the working class is, and it's that. Yeah. So. And then they go to the, they go to the um, God, what, what is the name of the bar? Are, are we talking the burlesque show or the, or just the burlesque? The, I don't the, remember the, what the bar is called. The next, the next step after the, the, the lunch. I in love the, this scene. Yeah. No. Um, I mean, in the book you have, you know, like there's like a little scene where like you're in the apartment and what I was kind of thinking about when I watched the movie again was that you have these scenes where Lemus is like, oh, this apartment looks like a sort of a quick job, you know? It's like sort of obvious what's going on here, um, but you know he he plays along with it, and I always thought that was kind of fun in the book and in the movie too. Is that he sort of plays? But I mean, it's much more drawn out in the book where he's like, "Oh, I'll wait till he gets to the end of his story just to humor him, and then we'll move on." But you know, they move on to this uh, Pussy Willow Club. Yeah, is that's the a, name. 
just so ridiculous name. Uh, yeah, and they move on, and they're like they're they're in the the, the club, and they. You know, there's such a focus on drinking. I mean, it's like, it's a great drinking movie. It's like a, you know, yeah. It, like they have this bottle on the table and it's like, you know, it's just, it doesn't even exist anymore. Like drinking seltzer, like, you know, you have a bottle of whiskey that you order, then you have a bottle of like a glass bottle with this like metal handle and you like put the soda water in the whiskey glass. There also seems to be this theme of scarcity, like in terms of England post-war, like having this bottle and they're just it just seems to be so special not only because he's an alcoholic but also because he's doesn't have the means to buy this stuff himself I guess. yeah well when he and, buys bottles by the half or something which i guess must be some british thing <laughs> i mean even when they're in the pussy willow club the eroticism of it being a strip club it doesn't really seem to matter like that it's like a strip club it, it's more just that's a place to drink like the drinking itself is so sensuous and mm-hmm. that it's like yeah, that, to me, over it, 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 like having the bottle on the table is more appealing to Lemus than like the strippers, right? And I, I want to talk about like the interior of this club specifically, which again, this film is so dark and dour up until this moment in the club where everything is like bright white and sparkling, and 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 yet like the the dancer, you barely mm-hmm. you can barely see her perform. I mean, there's right. a couple of cuts. It's like an afterthought. Shot. Yeah, um, but for the most part, like exactly what you said like it's the sort of the gleaming glasses on the table are what draws not just Lemus's eye but the viewer's eye this the it's the drink that's that's the real and even when they're talking about money it doesn't really matter because it's mostly seems to be about the whiskey it does and i mean in the initial lunch with the bottle of wine the bottle of wine just seems like the best bottle of wine you could imagine like it's just so you know it's like this it's like this ambrosia it's just like the best thing you could ever have i mean and um, the same thing at the Pussy Willow Club. They get this bottle and they like, I think he gives the waiter a hard time or something. The money is an afterthought. Uh, the girls at the club are also an afterthought in my viewing. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely the most sort of James Bond-esque setting in the whole movie, I would say. Um, right. Is this sleek club where the waiters wear white jackets when they bring you your, your orders. But it's the drinking that's most sensuous. It's, it's Lemus... Uh, spooling out this uh this next tier of of the seduction that he's in and this this guy is a little more composed and serious seeming than mr ash the first person that has recruited lemus no and really cruelly dispatches ash yeah just tells him to like yeah. fuck off uh which is going to be a great return recurring gag with all of the uh right <laughs> yeah. exactly it is which and i think that's Something the movie does so extremely well is how it distills information to the viewer and and how you are barely able to see past basically Lemus's own nose. And, you know, you learn stuff almost simultaneously to him. And so once you get to this next rung of the East German spies that are recruiting Lemus to defect, you know, this guy seems like he's like the whole package. Like he's he's the most like serious operator you're going to meet until you meet the next tier and the next one after that, you know? Oh, I, I was just going to say that I think that that element helps keep the sense of immediacy just uh, throughout the film, uh, learning information as Lemus does. So we leave we leave the club, or maybe this happens before the club, I'm not sure, but um, Lemus uh, goes, to, goes to meet the legendary George Smiley, who um, both in novel and in film has been alluded to 
in the past uh, as sort of a, a great semi-retired spy. But uh, he lives in Chelsea, which I think, again, speaks to the, the class difference that we see. Lemus, who lives, I think, in sort of like the, the grummy South London sort of slums. Um, he's going to go to Chelsea, which is a very, you know, kind of expensive, rich part of London, to go meet George Smiley. Um, and we meet Smiley, and he, he's very much sort of a, in the mold of control, a sort of outwardly smiley guy. He's plump. He's got a nice mustache. He's got a nice house. This movie, I would say, has kind of... There are three key pivots that are... I reveal them as they go, but they're not necessarily... They're sort of twists in that they are reveal that things have been going on differently than you think they have. But they, to me, pivots is the better word because it's all about reorienting to realize that in this case, that Alec Lemus is part of a plot to lure the East German spies into recruiting him to defect and that they're going to use it to plant evidence on Munz, the austere, the head of East the German, ruthless head of the East German spies. Um, who has killed uh, Lemus's agent in the very beginning of the movie. And so it's kind of this first pivot where everything you thought you knew, you don't really, and that uh, Lemus's alcoholism is is genuine and is a, a and his sort of destitution is real, but that it's it's all part of a plan and that he's not he is not being lured by the East Germans. He is actually luring the East Germans. I and I think the the novel is is structured in a similar way. Um, where like like the film, it's alluded to that Lemus may or may not be recruited by control at the very beginning. Um, but then we sort of follow his spiral without much interaction until he meets Smiley once again. But immediately after that, he leaves Smiley and he 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 runs back to Nan. Yeah. For for a farewell dinner. Yeah, he tells her he's leaving. He tells her I'm on a plane tomorrow morning to go to the, the Netherlands. Netherlands. Again, I don't I don't have much to say about the scene. It's... I don't think they have a great amount of chemistry. Yeah, I mean. I believe it's Claire Bloom who plays Nan. I think she's pretty good, you know? Like, I think she sells the kind of her attraction to Lemus, and I think she also sells her commitment to these values and her involvement in the local communist party. But they truly have two and a half conversations in this whole movie, and they exist more, I think, to <laughs> illustrate the, the the despair and just kind of the pits of cynicism in Lemus and how burned out he is and less uh, about their connection to each other. So we had uh, we head to Holland. Head to Holland. Um, yeah, I mean, Lemus. Meet the you know, next, next step on the road. I mean, he has fun in Amsterdam. Obviously, like he's, you know, weed is legal there. So he goes and, and goes to a coffee <laughs> shop. And it's a whole thing where he needs right. to get a Dutch guy to buy the weed for him. But like, they, you know, <laughs> the cashier kind of sees him do it, but it's okay. He tells Nan before that he's not going to get too high, like he's just going to smoke yeah. a little bit. But he gets this one pre-roll that's like, you know, it's really big, and he's just hanging out on the canal, and it just, just hits, yeah. They've got you know? that like they do the fisheye lens on Richard Burton's face as he's like running around, and like uh, uh, they play like the Barney theme song, but it's like a dubstep remix. It's it's very cool. Right, he gets hit yeah. by a bike, <laughs> falls into the canal. It's like a uh, like a wacky chase scene where a prostitute is like coming at him with a flip-flop you know right it's like some ragtimes playing and like, <laughs> it becomes like a chaplain I, i've scene, never been to know? amsterdam but one of the only images i know from it in my head is of uh i, I know it's totally on the list but I, I had a friend who had gone there with family in middle school to visit a local friend and the local friend was like 
All right, kids, we're going to take a really quick uh, uh, shortcut through this one neighborhood. Like, just kind of look at the floor of the car. Don't look out the window because he had taken them through the red light district for a shortcut. But, like, he got lost for, like, 30 minutes in the red light district. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That does not happen in this movie. Uh, uh, Nor does he No, we're in Holland for about 15 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And, yeah. I mean, you have the great scene where... Well, the he, he gets through the passport clearance, and his passport is about to expire, but it, it's not yet. It's just like done, so he can't like so he can't like flee or whatever. He's like on a on a leash, and then he gets to the the dunes where there's like having where they have this like yeah. villa, and um, yeah, yeah, and then you have the classic like scene where it's like. Hey, next exactly. Guy. Like he's just and, like, all right, uh, get out of here, crook. Right. Like Lemus is mine now. <laughs> um, and that's yeah. uh, that's Sam. Yeah, Wanamaker, and then, who's the, the uh, I think I think is East German now. So we finally have cracked past the like British collaborators and we're into the Germans. That's Sam Wanamaker who plays him, who's uh, kind of just an awesome character actor. Also, someone who'd been blacklisted. Um, he got blacklisted in the fifties while he was working in the UK on a movie. And so he just decided to stay over there and just become a, a UK like stage and film actor. And um, he would eventually go and direct the pilot episode for the TV show Lancer, which is what Leonardo DiCaprio was filming in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So that guy in the, that oh, guy wow. in the dressing room who's like, we want you to look like a hippie, like that's kind of the look you have to have. That that guy is playing Sam Wanamaker in that scene, who is who is uh, oh, uh, interrogator here. He's great. I, I think this, there's again. He kind of looks like a beefed up Cassidy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there's more drinking. Like they drink wine, and uh, but then the, the guys like all have coffee, and he's like, "Oh, you do that? You just have coffee?" And it's like this <laughs> sort of cutting line. It's great. Like I mean, it's it's you know, in, in terms of talking about the book and the movie, it, it's hard to imagine having seen the movie. It's hard to imagine the character of Lemus without. You know, having the figure of Burton, Richard mm-hmm. Burton, in your head, I think, after watching uh, the uh, One of the, I think, really nice clues of this movie that the East Germans are, for as, as friendly as many of them are to him, that they're not quite on his team, is how they keep feeding him alcohol. No matter what, they're, they like he's way easier to deal with drunk, so they just try to keep him drunk, you know? And the way that they just take advantage of his addiction there. Yeah, I think there's this idea that um, Lemus has maintained this sense of I'm doing this reluctantly. It's not, I don't have a pension, but you know, I, 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 I'm doing this for, for, you know, I'm doing this reluctantly. I have my reasons, but I'm doing this reluctantly. And, you know, there's no way that things would go past me because I was the Berlin head of operations and then the Berlin handlers starting in in Holland. uh, But also previous to that are, you know, feeding him alcohol. So there's like an antagonism. It's not like, okay, he flips sides and it's like Edward Snowden. He's just like, boys with his handlers now and they're all like hanging out and like he you know it's set up early on like right he when nan says she believes in history he starts laughing well he's got the yeah he's terrific analogy about the the he says i saw a car crash in which like two buses converged on a on a car and killed a family and capitalism communism those are the two buses and it's only innocent people who get hurt right it's the innocents who get slaughtered uh it's like his own version of the trolley problem. Like <laughs> yeah. <you> know? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's and that's the recurring logic for Lemus is that like, and, and I think that the moral weight for Lemus is, is like the, 
the car, the idea of the car accident is this like, that's the moral stakes is that, you know, there's two different systems at play and both achieve the same sort of slaughter of innocence. There's a reckoning of guilt, but there's no sort of system that necessarily is going to be beneficial to fixing either one. Well, especially because this whole, um, I, I sort of find this interesting in, in the idea of any like Jangoistic Cold War spy. Um, is there, they're government employees, you know, like they're bureaucrats who are out there defending like the free market as an idea, except that Lemus's whole life is he works for the spy agency until he gets a job through the unemployment office at a library, you know, like, uh, and beats up a shop owner. You know, he like the only capitalist who really spend time with in this movie, he fights. Exactly. And in, in the in the book, it's supposed to be like he fights the grocery store owner. And that is a portrayed in the Daily Worker as a example of, you know, the proletarian being fed up with uh, their exploitation and they take it out in this instance of rage. And so it makes a good story. Yeah, I um, I, I recently yeah. like I got an order wrong at a restaurant and like I like flipped over some tables and I, I tried very hard to get Jacobin <laughs> to pick it up. I re- <laughs> they just wouldn't they just didn't quite see the appeal right and then pretty soon you know you'll have the kgb or the gru or the, the <laughs> yeah that's you know knocking at your door like hey like you know you'd be really valuable for us i wish i i have this like one like just... I'm, I'm probably gonna edit south of pod because it's too treasonous but i have this, i do have this dream of like becoming <laughs> like an american studies prof in tehran or something so like i can um like i just right. i I get to I mean, listen to like rock music and import whatever I want because it's like research material. But then I just get like, I don't know, like unlimited. Uh... No, I mean, I've totally thought of the same thing. No, I, I mean, maybe you should add this out too. But I have thought of, um, you know, in seven, six, seven years when I'm on the job market trying to get a teaching job, you know, China's on the rise. That's what people yeah. are saying in the news and the economists, you know, and, and all the, the big outlets. So, you know, I could be teaching Mark Twain to some Chinese students in Shenzhen or something. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm taking a pay cut from the CCP. You know, it, I'll make my compromises to get tenure yeah. um, <laughs> but, you know, and live in China or something. But, yeah. Hey. The joke. Mine was a you joke. Yours is a legitimately good career idea. However, uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. All right, where are we? So Sam Wanamaker is is interrogating him, and in the and the two sort of in, in the the salient information they're starting to kind of lift out of out of Lemus is that there is a mole in the East German spy system, and Lemus has been funneling money to an account attached to this person, but they don't quite have enough evidence to figure out whom exactly it is and i i yeah that is i would say that is the essence of it but i think what's also important about the scene is that it is in uh uh moon's home um or one of his houses but he's gone for a little bit so i think this is the first time that we are really in the shadow of munt uh once they've driven him into east germany right oh i'm sorry yeah you're but right. no that yeah you're at like moon's like this like gothic castle that he has um and i would well, and I think this is sort of the second pivot in the movie is when it's you start to realize that uh, Lemus is in some pretty legitimate danger and he cannot just escape or leave when he thinks he'll be able to. He's a prisoner now, not a defector. And this is when it, it's revealed that his absence in the UK has been noted and that he cannot simply go home. And then the question is, was it Smiley who leaked it to the yeah. press or was it the Germans? 
he is trying to play the Germans, but I think is beginning to question whether he has been played by his own side. That's when it first comes into play, when he's becomes unsure of what he was been told, and there's this issue of, I don't know if what's going on, and who released that information, um, and I don't want to go for this far east. And, you know, there's a question of, like, when you're watching it, you're like, you know, to talk about Burton and performance, you know, you're wondering, as a viewer, is he performing this role now of Smiley's character that he needs to do? Um, is he, uh, you know, playing the role of the defector and just voicing his annoyance at having to go further east? Or is he actually worried? And so that's like a, a source of tension that gives the movie some, like, you know, real oomph. Yeah, and, and this is where I say, when I when I commend Burton while also having some reservations about him, I think this is a great performance, is that he is performing a performance, and it's unclear where the divide is. And that is what I find so compelling about Richard Burton in this film, even while I have reservations about his casting. Burton's great in this in this scene, but he does get driven east. Uh, I, I believe, is, is this where we where we meet uh oscar werner as fiedler as the second in command uh who is who is just like so dapper and kind of a giant breath of fresh air um and he gets his great the way he shafts the underling ahead of him sam wanamaker is uh it's revealed that character has a limp and it's like had it's like a big hassle for him to get up these stairs and go into a chair <laughs> uh and he holds out a document for fiedler to come and pick up and fiedler just refuses to take the three steps across the room and gets it and makes uh, him stand up and bring it to it's so good it's yeah. a huge um <laughs> this is a, a a very suit heavy film and you you talk about the way that um fiedler is a, a breath of fresh air but he's wearing like a he's wearing like a leather jacket and he's got like this leather newsboy cap he looks very much like like a beatnik you'd see in the west village and in, in 1961 he's cool like, like he, yeah there's a there's a certain you know, you're 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 left to wonder, like, is Rit, is he pulling from his nostalgia from doing like group theater in New York, right? <laughs> yeah, is yeah, he yeah, like, yeah. You know, and and is he sort of playing with his own sympathies? Um, because you know, the character Fiedler becomes one of the most sympathetic, um, you could say, pure characters in the movie that you're left with, and and and, and Fiedler himself becomes this sort of like object of like. Well, you become sympathetic for him. He's the true spy. He is... He's he's a true spy, and if you didn't care about Fiedler, then you wouldn't really care too much. It would just be abstract in terms of the betrayal. I mean, aside from the other things that happen at the end of the film. But yeah, I mean, he's a cool guy, and you're like, man, Fiedler rocks. (laughs) Yeah, he's played by by Oscar Werner, who's a, a German actor that worked with Truffaut a lot, and... Could resurface in this podcast um, because he's a star of Truffaut's uh, Fahrenheit uh, 451 uh, adaptation. Oh, whoa. Which would be a fun one to look at. And he's terrific in this movie. Like he is, he's warm, but very smart. You know, he's not, uh, he's not always necessarily polite to, to Richard Burton, but he's always, um, he's always like deeply likable. Yeah, he's, he's, um, you learn through the book that he had lived in Canada uh, during the war and he had like Marx's parents and you assume that he fled Germany, uh, because he's a Jew and he comes back and now he's taking up his role in trying to build a communist state in Germany. He's, he, he, he's younger, different generation. And he has this, uh, sort of like alien 
in the sense that like, okay, like, what do you believe in? Like, it becomes this sort of classic dialogue where it's like, I'm someone who doesn't understand your way of life. Now you need to explain to me what your ideological position is. And then Burton has this whole thing where he's like, I don't have an ideology, uh, which of course is an ideology, but Burton can't articulate it like that. So I actually have an audio drop as well uh, from that conversation. I'm a technician, Fiedler. Just a technician. But not a communist technician. Oh, for God's sake. I don't believe in Father Christmas. I don't believe in God or Karl Marx. I don't believe in anything that rocks the world. But how do you sleep? You have to have a philosophy. I reserve the right to be ignorant. That's the Western way of life. I couldn't have put it better myself. You think ignorance a valuable contribution to world knowledge? You fight for ignorance. Go to hell. <laughs> Look, all I want to know is why. What's the motor? As a matter of fact, I invented the combustion engine and the two-way nappy. I'm a hero of the Soviet Union. I wear the Order of Lenin on my rump. I'm a man, you fool. Don't you understand? A plain, simple, muddled, fat-headed human being. We have them in the West, you know. That's what it's all about. Is that why you became a spy? <laughs> Look, your job and mine permit us to take human life. If I want to kill you, and I can only do it by putting a bomb in a restaurant, and that's the way I'll kill you. That's what I'll do. Innocent people die every day. They might as well do so for a reason. Afterwards, I may drop a purely academic balance. 20 men killed 15 women, 9 children, and an advance of 3 yards. What about you? If ever I have to break your neck, I promise to do it with a minimum of force. I do want to talk about this interaction specifically. This is the first real exterior that that we get because we see the streets of Berlin and we see the streets of, of London, but it's all very dark and gray and, and cluttered and, and claustrophobic. And in this moment, which is I think the first moment of personal and professional connection with a, uh, between two characters, because again, he has scenes with Nan, but I am uh, out on them. Um, this is the first time that, that we see, Lemus respect and be respected and it's also as they're hiking through the mountains and it's just a beautiful backdrop that they have it's it's it feels the first time that Lemus has been released from the sort of I'm about to sound like Creed here but the fucking prison of his own making you know uh no but the the sort of um the constraints and the trauma that his career put him in and through connection with Fiedler, who, again, is just such a cool guy. You know, one way of thinking about it, it's almost like a rehab scene in a sense, because he's like on this yeah. retreat, right? And he's like, uh -huh. you know, he's been in London and the city and it's just like scummy and, and sucks. And then he gets to Germany and he's in like this sort of alpine or pseudo alpine mountain retreat. And he's like doing a hike. Um, and he's having an honest conversation with someone else who's like seems to be at his level who can challenge him. Um, so yeah, it has this kind of like ring of like a a therapeutic scene, or almost literally like a like he's in rehab at some institute, some sanatorium or something. In a film that is otherwise just so universally bleak, there's sort of there's one moment of just that's just nice. Mm -hmm. This is just a nice a nice moment. It make it made me happy a little bit. Yeah. It's great. I love this. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the, the moment I latch onto a lot in the Fiedler Lemus conversation is when they when they talk about death and they and they talk about killing people and Fiedler's sort of like 
if I have to put a bomb somewhere, I will put a bomb somewhere and trying to put on this sort of, it, it feels like a boy trying to sort of put on big boy pants and trying to show off that he is just as detached and cold about the game of espionage as Lemus is. As we'll see, I, I don't think Fiedler is that uh, as detached from the, the game as he wants to be, and he isn't nearly as cynical as he as he sees himself. Um, and and that's sort of the revealing stretch in that model and that exchange for me about about Fiedler. But uh, I think Lemus is responsive. If I did have to kill you, I, I would break your neck with the softest force that I could is also very revealing about him. You, I, I think Lemus has totally killed people. I mean, I'm sure that's a dynamic of the book as well, but like this, this dude has like absolutely murdered people and how that weighs on him and how he is cynical enough to have done it repeatedly, um, but how it has like totally just scarred him uh, forever. Yeah, it's a it's a monumental exchange. It's It's super. I mean, it's in a movie that is only probably about 14 scenes total. This is like the top one or two of them, I would say. And coming uh, down from the hike, I think we we see the payoff of all of the scheming, or at least what we believe is is the yeah. Payoff. Fiedler has has followed up on the bank receipts, and and they've he thinks that he's got Muntz. He thinks that Muntz, the head of the East German spies, is a mole for the British, and he he goes and he writes his report, and then something very crucial happens: is that Munt finds out and has them both arrested, and. Here again, I don't, it's again very lame just to talk about differences between um, the the film and the book. But the, the film, we see Munt, and he's a very harsh looking man. He, he, um, he looks very German, very martial, but he, he doesn't have a lot of speaking time, and he smacks Richard Burton around some, and so he's, by all accounts, mean, um, but otherwise is, is kind of a little bit blank, and I and I want to talk about this sequence in the book a little bit. First, you talk about the way that Lemus has absolutely killed people. Um, in the in the book, uh, Lemus kills a man. Now, he, he beats one of his guards to death who are coming to arrest him uh, because he thinks he's about to be shot. Um, and it is a vicious moment. Um, and then he is personally tortured by Munt. And then Munt tortures Fiedler while uh, repeatedly calling him a Jew under his breath. And I think that being cut from the film really, I, I don't think sadism for sadism's, sadism's sake is particularly valuable in filmmaking. But I do think the fact that Munt is a Nazi and a Nazi in, in, in the truest sense of the word, a virulent uh, hater of Jews and those he sees as lesser, does get lost a little bit in translation. And you don't I, I certainly didn't feel the same visceral disgust for Munt. Well, it's funny because um, I think From Russia With Love came out the same year um, or just the year before. Right. It's a, it's a matter of like two years. But in any case, uh, From Russia With Love came out uh, just before the movie. And there's a the main Russian character is like this blonde haired, blue eyed, like just like blank slate. And he's like, a, um, he's a, like a piece of granite in that movie is what I remember. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, um, similar looking characters uh, fits like the Nazi mold. Um, but in the movie, you never you, you it's it's more of an, uh, an allusion to Nazism. It's not like it's not nearly as much of a commitment to being like this guy's. Um, and especially in the way that they framed the idea of ideology in the book in terms of Fiedler 
believes in something and then Liz believes in something. There's Liz slash Nan, man. And uh, Moont in the movie comes across as perhaps more just an opportunist uh, with Nazi sympathies, but it's clear in the book that he's not so much of an opportunist as like a Nazi who's being rehabilitated by the West. Um, so Yeah, one... Um... I think you're right that it's an allusion to to Moons's Nazism, mostly in how much uh, Peter Van Eyck just looks the part of this uh, ruthless blonde, like steel-eyed dude. One of the fun uh, sort of ironies of this movie is that um, Peter Van Eyck actually fled Germany once the Nazis came to power, um, and I think moved to the U.S. since is how he became an actor. Whereas Oscar Werner, who plays uh, plays Fiedler, the Jewish character. He actually stayed in in Germany and was was a member, I think, of the of the Wehrmacht. Although, kind of from his stories, he was a pacifist and like very uh, uh, deeply opposed to national socialism. Um, and so he would uh, he like intentionally failed out of military school, basically, so that he wouldn't have to fight in the war. Well, shout out to Peter Van Eyck. I think he I think his performance is fine. He doesn't have much to do, but he he looks very frightening. But I do think this stage of adaptation, this is a bummer. I think this is when Lemus kills the guard uh, in that scene uh, in Kari's novel. Um, he, I think, he hits the guard below the neck, and he doubles over. Then he hits him in the neck from the top, like you know, so from like the you know from the front and then the back, right? And it's like unclear exactly if he's like actually in the process of breaking his neck, but it's like this sort of expert job, and it's like this quick dispatch of this guy, and it's like, this brutal, quick. Um, two part movement or something like that, and it's just um, it's a vicious maneuver. And then the guy, and then he, then you know he's not clear if he's dead or not. But then he he actually expresses that he hopes the guy is dead. Uh, there's no sense of guilt. The film is just it, it's just a little clean in moments like this. Both it sort of keeps the West's hands clean with the recruitment of Munt, uh, and and keeps Richard Burton's hands clean when in the novel he's a bit of a bit of a monster. Can we go to the trial, the tribunal? Uh, they have brought three people in from the East German government to review the evidence in Fiedler's report that, that Muntz, rehabilitated Nazi head of the East German spies, is actually a British mole. And, and obviously Lemus is kind of crucial testimony inside of this. It works in the movie. I think it's a good scene. It's it's cool to have to have Werner be kind of like a showboating like trial lawyer in the last few minutes of the movie. No, it reminds I, me of a, I, of a closed hearing or something like you might have in sure. Congress or something yeah. like that. I think it's fine. It's a court sequence. You know, it's very, the, the structures of it are very familiar. I know uh, it's great. They, they even say in the beginning, like, this is a tribunal. This is not a trial. This is not a court scene in the movie. But like, it's totally a court scene in the movie. Like, including yeah. their, their star witness, Nan, also known as Liz to book readers, who we've seen brought to East Germany on supposedly a cultural exchange between the London Communist Party and the, I don't know, Leipzig Communist Party, a German city's Communist Party. And she gets brought in as a as a as the witness. And you can just see Lemus, I, I think, just like freaking the fuck out, you know, keeping it as contained as he has mm -hmm. been through the whole movie. But realizing that like his cover is inescapably blown by her showing up right now. Yeah. And Moons has brought her in. Moons, who has like his lawyer you know who uh i don't know who that is but it's like a very fun one scene uh 
dude putting on a convincing German he's, accent. He's yeah. great. Like, <laughs> I love this performance. It's a, there are a lot of people. Like, we've talked a lot over the course of this podcast about people with one or two great one or two scene performances. He's in it. This guy, I don't know his name. I don't know his character's name. He fucking knocks it out of yeah. the park. He's like the Bavarian version of the like, uh, like Southern lawyer in a seersucker suit or something. Like, <laughs> uh, he rules. Yeah, he just has this like preternatural, like really good lawyer. You know, kind of like you didn't quite expect it, but he's just like kills it. Yeah. You know. I just watched the verdict with Paul Newman, and uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but there's just like there's always that idea, you know, in, in terms of you know trial dramas, like you know someone comes in and just just really nails it, right? And it's about the performance of it. And then, and, and I, what I think is funny is that Fiedler is like, look, like that's a clever thing to say, but it's not true. And you know, the axiom of intelligence is that each link only knows so much, so that. Um, Lemus not knowing about this other aspect that Mutant is bringing in only goes to show that he is part of uh, a plot that he's not quite aware of. Um, so you sort of have these like two dynamics at play where Fiedler is like this intellectual Jew who understands um, what is happening in the courtroom and has the information and is trying to apply these like enlightenment principles to, you know, get this thing going and to say like, look, like, that's exactly what intelligence is and that's sort of makes sense according to my argument um but it's so compelling that that liz is brought in so yeah it makes for a good scene even though it's not a courtroom scene and i i do kind of want to talk about construction i mean uh, the spy who came in from the cold is very much it's it's an espionage movie but it's also a detective story it's uh you know it's fiedler and and lemus trying to figure out who screwed who and the worst part of every detective story is the sort of info dump uh that comes at the very end where the detective lays out all of the conclusions and then it's sort of a flat resolution all the time and le carre and martin ritt the way that they both constructed the reveals of their of their plot to be uh, a courtroom drama, which again is not a flat dump at all, but has its own stakes. Just narratively, it's uh, it's very neat. It's uh, it's nice. That's a nice trick. Should we do a John Grisham miniseries? Is there any meat on that bone, or is that like gonna kill us? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I just watched The Firm recently. Tom Cruise. <laughs> that movie is just fucking wild. <laughs> I mean, the, one of the subtexts of that movie is just like leaving the north and going to the south and like the south is this repository of like reactionary old boy stuff but they're also doing all these deals for the mob that, i don't know that's just like oof, john grisham man um, <laughs> the crux of the court scene is yeah they bring in nan and nan um she blows apart lemus's story she reveals the link between him and smiley uh, against under is duress, he, I, I would note is that she's um, yes she's been interrogated and reveals that George Smiley Muntz has evidence of a connection between Lemus and George Smiley and reveals that George Smiley has given her money in this time where Lemus is gone. Ergo, Lemus is is working under Smiley's orders and that he's been there to plant evidence on Muntz. He blows the whole the the case is blown. You know their their scheme has failed. They're done. Which Lemus immediately admits to in order to get Nan out of trouble. And also tries to save uh, Fiedler. Um, yeah. And tries to honestly say that Fiedler was a dupe. Um, but uh, 
yeah, that's the end. It's from there, which we have a straight line to Berlin and, and the conclusion. So let's yeah, I, so um, the Nan and and Fiedler is taken off at the end of the tribunal. Nan and Lemus are put in prison, and Lemus hears some clicking at his door, and it's unlocked, and he is able to let himself out. It's just a great wordless sequence of him going from open door to open door to open door until he finds himself outside of the prison where he is confronted by none other than Muntz, who has been a collaborator with the British this whole time. The evidence that Lemus brought over is legitimate, true evidence of his betraying East Germany. But the plot by MI6 has been to have Lemus appear with all this evidence and then get discredited, and in doing so, discredit any suspicion of Muntz there their mole like it's cutting it sucks like you hate moons fuck this guy and he is about to save lemus's life after humiliating him what's interesting about this whole sequence to me is that and especially on reading the book um just this week and then watching the movie again is that the reaction from lemus uh upon getting perfect information upon upon like if control is some sort of god you know by intelligence standards in, in terms of the fact that he has all of the um, components on the chain or all the links where everyone else is compartmentalized and he can, and he, he will, he and Smiley can see everything. And then they're putting all these pieces into place. And um, Lemus's reaction to finding out what is going on is sort of this, it doesn't seem measured. He's like, ah, you know, this is how it is. Uh, and it plays into Fiedler's idea of like, you know, I have this ideology and a mission, uh, whereas you don't really seem to have one and you take comfort in that or something like that. Um, knowing like conscious comf- comfort in not having an ideology. And it just reminds me of like, I read, uh, Kissinger's book, uh, on diplomacy years ago. And this whole idea of like, you know, like sort of like a, what I don't know, seems to be like a classic, like foreign policy ideology in, in terms of like real politic influence from Kissinger and like this apoliticism of foreign policy. Like this is just the way things are and we have to do these certain things and people get like messed up. And Lemus doesn't really seem to want to disown that like he hates the circus, but he he's so caught up in being a part of it that he doesn't want to completely disown it. He's like, fuck Smiley, but I've got the audio drop of that clip he gives at the end where he talks about kind of who spies are. What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell balancing right against wrong? Yesterday I would have killed Munt because I thought him evil and an enemy, but not today. Today he's evil and my friend. London needs him. They need him so that the great moronic masses you admire so much can sleep soundly in their flea-bitten beds again. They need him for the safety of ordinary, crummy people like you and me. You killed Fiedler. How big does a cause have to be before you kill your friends? What about your party? There's a few million bodies on that path. I think if, you know, like we were talking about before in courtroom dramas or other types of movies where there's a scene where everything is explained and maybe in like a closing dialogue in the courtroom uh, in psycho, there's that like appended scene at the end where like 
some guy explains every like you know pathology. It turns out he was just... dressing as his mother to stab in the shower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like, that's like the for me that's always the classic example. And I think that Hitchcock has you know said that that was just something the studio tacked on. And I don't think of this scene as being that, but I do think it accomplishes something similar. It's like it clarifies. But I also think that from that scene we don't get a sense that you know Lemus really wants to completely write off like it he isn't willing to let go of the fact that he's always known this aspect of the circus and that's the guilt that's been you know sort of plaguing him from the beginning why he's been like drinking so much like it's not just some like oh wow like the circus actually like is so bad like he knew that from a quite a long time ago so anyway my my sort of takeaway from that is just that there is this sort of like Kissingerian realpolitik, a space that is supposed to be non-ideological and just about what the stakes really are. Like, we have to kill these people. It's just the game we're playing. I also agree this sequence of him explaining the circus in the car to Nan doesn't feel cute in the way, and, and neat in the way that, that the sort of psycho is, because it feels like a very, a real character moment of someone trying to reassure himself that he has not, you know, murdered a friend um, and trying to rationalize something that is unforgivable um, and not fully buying it as it comes out of his mouth. So he's saying these things and explaining the circus in the way that Smiley would explain the circus. But I don't actually, I don't think that Richard Burton believes anything that he is saying. And I don't think the audience is particularly, supposed to be particularly moved by the cleverness of Smiley's operation. I don't think so. I mean, it's so cutting and cold. I mean, to me, the the really the heartbreaking realization for the audience and for and for Lemus is that he is worth more to MI6 as a failure than he is as a success to them. Uh, he was doomed from the start. Basically, it's it's tragic. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And so they are led to the Berlin Wall by a very smiley German boy and instructed to climb over and are uh, summarily executed. <laughs> It's the it's the foreshadowing from the beginning. Like it, he is shot at the Berlin Wall. Well, I mean, I would I w- one beat I think to sort of to, to clear up is yeah, the yeah, yeah. Claire is shot first, and it seems like that's the plan from the get go is pull Lemus over to the other side and and kill and kill. Uh, not I keep calling her Claire because it's Claire Boone the actress, but um, to to Nan. kill Nan. Um, and Lemus peeks over the wall and sees George Smiley is there beckoning him back, but once. Once Liz has been shot, like, I think he sees no difference between Muntz and George Smiley in that point. Like, when they are both just, like, pits of cynicism that he himself is incapable of reaching. And that's why he climbs back over the wall and is sh- chooses to get shot, you know, kills himself. It's so cold. This movie is a fucking icicle in its final minutes, I think. In the same way that you have the searchlights go on in the first scene. Uh, that snaps out of the Sol Kaplan track and just sort of ruins it. You have the same dynamic at play here. Mm-hmm. The, the searchlights go on, and then that like dream of them getting away is interrupted. And then the German guy just takes aim at Nan's back, right, and kills her. And then there's sort of like this moment where George Smiley is, oh, come back over the wall. And you're like, oh, you know, 
he wants him to come over the wall and then he just gets shot. And it's sort of, I think it, it, the movie interestingly places you in this sort of absurd position where you're like, look, Smiley is telling you to go over the wall, just do it and you're okay. But I mean, how absurd is the situation in which Smiley has himself set up wherein, you know, of course it's like Smiley's hands are clean, right? But, it, you know, he's has to crawl up the ladder again and then he's going to be okay. Like, and that's the difference between him getting shot. But, you know, Smiley's the one who orchestrated this, right? So it's... It's a false choice. He, he can crawl the Smiley and live, return to his disgusting, impoverished existence in an England that's not worth saving, or he can stay and die in a Germany that's not worth saying, saving. It's, it's, it's all the that's same. What I, that's what goes through my mind every, every minute before we record these episodes is, <laughs> do, I, do, I, do I go back to my squalid, shitty life, or do I go back into the cold <laughs> recording? Right. Matthew, there is a game show. This game show is called Rotten Reads or Good Tomatoes. Um, I have taken a selection of out-of-context quotes, which are pulled from either audience reviews from Rotten Tomatoes of the movie, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, or they are taken from user reviews from Goodreads of the book, The Spy Who Came In From The Colds. I will go back and forth reading you and Caleb each one of these quotes, and you have to choose, is it a Rotten Tomatoes review of the movie or a Goodreads review of the book? Um... I don't really have a system for picking who goes first. Matthew, you're our guest. Would you like to go first? Sure. Okay, Matthew. Kirk H. writes, The Cold War sucked. This blank doesn't pretend it, and we were awesome. Matthew, is that a Rotten Tomatoes review or a Goodreads review? <laughs> um, I, I think I'm going to say it's a Goodreads review. Unfortunately, it is a Rotten Tomatoes review. Incorrect, I am sorry. Oh. God. All right, we pull over to Caleb. Caleb, your review. Quote, I never knew what to expect in this blank. What was real? What was the game? Are they even different? The ending was fantastic. Caleb, is that from Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? I think that's peak criticism right there. The ending was fantastic. Uh, I love that. Um, I'm going to say that's, I'm going to say that's Goodreads. Caleb, correct. That is Goodreads. One point for Caleb. Fucking asshole, Matt. (laughs) Fantastic. That's too many syllables for wrong (laughs) tomatoes. All right, Matthew, here's your quote. Fallen on hard times, drinking what little he's paid. One last job, then rest. Matthew, is that Goodreads or Rotten Tomatoes? (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, You know, clearly that is... um, that is uh, Goodreads. Correct. That is Goodreads. That uh, I believe attempted nice. a haiku okay. was a was a Goodreads review. <laughs> All right, Caleb, your question. An acquired taste. The style is very slow and can be a bit irritating at times. However, this blank manages to avoid being too slow. Dot dot dot. For the most part. Caleb, is that Rotten Tomatoes or Goodreads? That is so clearly a 47-year-old suburban man who doesn't like watching black and white movies. And uh, <laughs> I'm absolutely 158%. I've never been more confident about anything. That's a Rotten Tomatoes review. Caleb, correct. That is a Rotten Tomatoes review. You didn't wow. even have to tell me. Caleb in the lead with two points. Matthew with one. Matthew, your quote. The dirty business of espionage. Matthew, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten Tomatoes review? <laughs> <laughs> the dirty business of espionage. Oh, man. Um, 
you know, th- I'm just going to say that's a Goodreads. Incorrect. I'm sorry. That is Rotten oh. Tomatoes. Incredible oh, that's, hey, what do that I know? someone who watches film knows the word espionage. So Caleb is, remains in the lead. <laughs> Caleb, your review. Jack G writes, cold, the precognitive word. Caleb, is that a Rotten Tomatoes review or a Goodreads review? That's a Minority Report yeah. review. <laughs> Precog. Oh, um, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Goodreads for no. I completely shot in the dark. Goodreads, you said? Yeah. Incorrect, Caleb. That was a Rotten Tomatoes review. I Oof. I love these melodramatic reviews, trying to match the tone. Of- <laughs> People love them. People really try to have a. Uh, they really. We had such expectations for this movie, and unfortunately, disappointed us. All right, Matthew. Lena L. writes, The Spy, Cold War, Double Agents, Berlin, Communists, Betrayal. Not bad. <laughs> Slow, but not bad at all. Matthew, is that a Rotten Tomatoes reader or a good review, Goodreads review? Uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Correct. That is Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. It is now tied at 2-2. Caleb, your quote. I had problems with keeping up with the characters, the plot, who was who, and in general, what was going on. Caleb, is that a Rotten Tomatoes review or a Goodreads review? <laughs> Again, a 48-year-old dumb guy who uh, doesn't watch a lot of movies from before 1978, or I might even say 1997. I'm going to say that's Rotten Tomatoes. Correct. That is Rotten Tomatoes. You've regained the lead. I do know suburban dumb guys. All right, Matthew. Your quote. I ended up enjoying this after a slow start that had me thinking this blank wasn't for me. It was, after all. I enjoyed the not knowing if what was happening was real or cover or question mark, question mark. Very good cloak and dagger stuff. Matthew, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten review? Um, I'm going to go with my gut and say it's another Rotten Tomatoes review. Incorrect. That is a Goodreads review. Caleb hangs on to his lead. All right, Caleb. Right up until the point I knew nothing at all. Right up until when my mind went, ooh, and then, so that means it, dot, 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 followed a blank later by, ooh, no way, exclamation point, exclamation point. Caleb, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten Tomatoes review? Oh, uh, wow. This one is really hard. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right, Eddie, it's always just 50-50, to be fair. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm trying, I'm trying to get into the headspace of someone who, uh, who verbalizes in that way, you know? A I'm going to say... Perhaps? <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of O's. I think that is a... Donnie Darko, Christopher Nolan loving mindfuck teen. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to say Rotten Tomatoes. Unfortunately, incorrect. That oh. is good reads. But you still are still in the lead. All right. So uh, the score is Matthew's two points to Caleb's three. We will now go into the challenge round. Each of these questions, you each get one, and it'll be worth three points if you get it correctly. So this is your chance, Matthew, to claim the lead or for Caleb to decisively dominate you. All right, so here you go. Svag trea. Det finns definitivt att driva en när vi berättelsen, men egentligen inte så mycket mer i mitt tycke. Matthew, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten Tomatoes review? <laughs> well, since my Swedish is so good, I, um, you know, I'm gonna say that that's a 
that that's a Goodreads review. That is correct. That is good. Yes. <laughs> Matthew has claimed three points. He is on the lead now. Five oh. points to Caleb's three. All right, Caleb, here's your challenge question. This is what you can win with or or it's all over. Here we go. Gelmiş geçmişen iyi casus romanlarından birisi. Soğuk savaşın göbeğinde Berlin C.H. Point Charlie'de başlıyor. Oradan muhteşem bir yelpaze gibi açılıyor. Caleb, is that a Goodreads review or a Rotten Tomatoes review? I thought I heard Burton in there, so I'm going to say Rotten Tomatoes, but I don't feel good. Incorrect. It's it's Goodreads oh, as well. Oh, Matthew is the winner. Wow. Oh, the final God. round to take five points to Caleb's three. This is exactly uh, like when Munt defe- defeated Fiedler. You didn't think this was going to happen, did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? Congratulations. You stomped out the hey. clever little Jew. <laughs> Unbelievable. You don't have to lean hard into my goy status on the podcast. <laughs> I, You know, it, it brings me back to, uh, you know, this like Owen Wilson. I think on some podcast he uh, has some line about how, you know, watching Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, and Inherent Vice, he was just like, wow, like these movies, man. <laughs> you know, like, I, I didn't really know what was going on, but they seemed really smart. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, so. so it's time to end the fun at games and ask the very serious question. Is Martin Ritz, the spy who came in the cold, is it a, a, a rad adaptation? Is it a, is it a bad adaptation? Does it make you feel a little bit sad adaptation? Uh, Matthew Thomas, you're up first. I'll put it this way. I can't really think of uh, this book without thinking of without thinking of the movie um i might have to go with rad adaptation you know the soul kaplan score um yeah there are some deficiencies in terms of the realism it's not born you know mm-hmm. there's not a lot of violence uh but uh yeah i like the movie a lot so that's where i'll stick my my claim i just can't get over richard burton you know he's just He's a class act. It's true. You and Liz Taylor both. <laughs> I'll go next. I this movie. I I adore this movie. This is an early. I actually watched this movie only a couple months ago, early in quarantine, and was still very eager to rewatch it. It is just such a, a a powerful tonic to how many spy movies usually play out, and Richard Burton is fantastic in it. I love this movie. Like it's it's it 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 hurts so good. I I am going radaptation on this one. Maybe radaptation with a subcategory of ladaptation, just because Tim Burton's <laughs> kind of a lad. But other than that, radaptation. Yeah, no, I I I'm with you guys almost hundred percent of the way. I wish that I had seen the film first because I can see the way that Richard Burton's performance would just like burn itself into my brain. He's so good in this film. That said, I did read. I did read the novel first, which is always going to, I mean, it's stupid, but it's always going to, my, my affection leans more towards Le Carre and whether it is the fault of Martin Ritt or the fault of the Hayes Code and the, the system of self-censor, self-censorship in American cinema. But this, the film is, it, 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 it does not follow Le Carre into the depths of what espionage means. So it hurts but it doesn't hurt quite as bad as Le Carre's original. So while I while I love 
Saul Kaplan's score, and I love Richard Burton in it. I, I, I'm gonna say I'm glad it exists. It's a glad adaptation for me. But I think had this had this production waited five years until 1969 or 1970, this could have been Chinatown, and that, you know, Oof. that's gonna sit on my heart a little bit. But I'm still I'm still happy to, that this exists. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Do you want people to find you? Are there any causes you want to shout out or or donation links you want us to know about or anything? Um, yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. I have a really, you know, pathetic Twitter account. It's uh, Hetero Glossier. And, uh, you know, um, there are also a lot of good places to donate that, you know, aren't associated with my account that are probably more important. Um, but I think if you know of them, you, you know, you know what to do. So, Matthew, it's been terrific. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Stay frosty. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like a spy who came in from the cold. Stay frosty. <laughs> <laughs>